Hi there, folks. Welcome to this episode of Nerd Roamer. Tonight, we're going to be jumping in the time and space machine, and we're going to be heading north and approximately 50 years in the past. Transport yourself back to August 1967. The year started with a fire aboard the Apollo 1 spacecraft and saw the United States present in the Vietnam War in full swing under Lyndon Johnson. The Beatles, those rascally Brits, were topping the charts with Sgt. Pepper's, and over 100,000 young people had converged on San Francisco as part of the Summer of Love. Heading north to Glacier National Park, crown of the continent, green, mountainous, covered in glaciers. Our story is going to begin at the Granite Park Chalet. The Granite Park Chalet is one of the most iconic structures in the entire national park system. It's located at around 6,700 feet on the tree line on the High Line Trail, which traverses the crown of the continent. The section of the trail from Logan Pass to the chalet hugs the garden wall, whose towering green planks have drawn generations of hikers. The chalet itself was built in 1914 by the Great Northern Railway as part of its Alp-style hut system when they were looking to promote visitation to the park using their services. And it's still standing to this day and is available to people who are interested in sleeping in the backcountry. It's a bunkhouse in the wilderness where weary hikers can cook their own meals in a full-service kitchen and take in endless mountain vistas away from the hubbub of places like Logan Pass, Apgar Village, and Mini Glacier. By August of 1967, the summer had become extremely hot and dry. Remarkably so. And fires were burning in various locations throughout the park. So you've got this hot, dry, oppressive summer day, you've got smoke filling the air, and an electrical storm moving in. This ominous setting would provide the backdrop for one of the most tragic nights in the history of the entire national park system. It should be noted at this point that Glacier had an extremely excellent safety track record. The most common cause of injury or death in Glacier up to that point, and still to this day, was from falls and drowning. So, as long as you were careful around the water and careful around cliffs, there was thought to be very little risk from just hiking and camping in the backcountry. It's kind of interesting, especially when it comes to bear safety. Bears were viewed, grizzly bears, as these kind of gentle creatures that really did not want to have much to do with humans. And park rangers would say that they were orders of magnitude less dangerous than other animals like rattlesnakes, that kind of thing. Bear safety took up roughly three pages of the Glacier National Park operating manual, so it was not a major point of emphasis at the time. Julie Helgeson was only 19. She had traveled to Glacier Park for the summer from Albert Lee, Minnesota, which is this small farm town in south-central Minnesota, to work in the laundry room at Glacier Park Lodge, which is in East Glacier, over kind of where the, the railroads would drop people off in the early days of the park for visiting. She was camping with her boyfriend, Roy Ducat, who was a busboy at the same lodge, and they were just a few hundred yards from the chalet. They had taken the opportunity of the night off on Saturday, August 12th, from their jobs at the lodge to spend the night in the wilderness. As the thunderstorm moved in through the hot, dry weather, they sought to hunker down in advance of the storm. As they were sleeping in their tent just before midnight, Helgeson awakened Ducat to tell him that she thought she heard a bear nearby. They tried to remain as still and quiet as possible within their tent, but the bear continued its advance. It tore into the tent, mauling both of them. 
Ducat managed to crawl away and ran to summon some of the other campers for assistance, but by the time the bear had fled back into the wilderness, Helgeson had been dragged over a football field in length. Ducat and the other campers hurried her back to the chalet, where a medical helicopter was summoned over the radio. Fortunately, a doctor was staying at the chalet, and they spread her out on a table there where he could tend to her and try to stabilize her injuries. But he did find that she had puncture wounds to her throat and her lungs, and as they were working on trying to stem the bleeding and save her life, she passed away from blood loss and shock before the helicopter could reach them. Those working at the Glacier Park Chalet were stunned by the events. This was Glacier National Park, and this was a grizzly bear. The park itself had been in existence for around 50 years and had never had a single major incident between humans and bears. Never any attacks, never any killings, never any maulings. In fact, the bears were somewhat of an attraction. People would come to the chalet specifically to watch the bears come by to feed on garbage that had been left by the chalet or campers nearby. So how could this happen? Unfortunately, this night of tragedy was only just beginning. Michelle Coons of San Diego, California, was also only 19 years old. Like Julie Helgeson, she had taken a break from her life back home to work in the park at a gift shop for the summer. She also took the opportunity for a weekend break on Saturday, August 12th, to go on a backcountry camping adventure. Along with four friends and her dog named Squirt, they departed the Trout Lake Trailhead at Lake McDonald and climbed over Howe Ridge to settle into a campsite near Trout Lake. This is quite distant from the Granite Park Chalet and is on the western part of the park, many, many miles away and at a much lower elevation. As they hiked up the trail, another group of campers warned them of a bear that had been a little bit too close for comfort. She and her friends remained vigilant. As they were setting up their camp, they did actually note a grizzly bear approach them and steal some of their food. They were a bit unnerved by this close encounter and moved their camp right up to the lakeshore and built a large fire in an attempt to keep wild animals away, keep them from venturing into camp. Eventually, things seemed quiet and calm, and they retired to their sleeping bags. Around four in the morning, one of Coon's companions awoke to the sound of a bear smelling them. The bear hovered over her for a moment, long enough for the camper to be able to feel the bear's hot breath on her face. She remained still and quiet and watched as the bear moved on to the other campers, from one to the other, smelling and moving on, smelling and moving on, ever curious. When it reached Coons, she awoke face to face with the bear and screamed. At this point, her friends bailed from their sleeping bags and grabbed her dog to climb into the branches of the trees around their campsites. They screamed for Coons to follow them and flee into the forest and climb into a tree, but the zipper on her bag jammed, and as she was trying to get out, the bear took the opportunity to maul her, grabbed a hold of her arm and its powerful jaws, and dragged her away. Her friends tried to scare the bear from the trees, yelling at it and throwing things at it in an attempt to scare it, but it dragged her also about a hundred yards away. They remained in the trees for hours, and at first light they descended to find Coons dead near the lake. Park ranger Bert Gildert had been up late the night before. He had spent much of the previous day coordinating efforts to combat one of the fires burning in the park, and had turned in to get some much-needed rest in his apartment. After only a few hours of sleep, a knock at his door awoke him from his slumber. Another ranger informed him of Coon's death at Trout Lake. He hopped in his truck and quickly made his way to the trailhead, hiking into Trout Lake over Howe Ridge on the same trail that the group had taken. 
he did this as quickly as he could. By the time he reached the lake, he and another ranger named Landa, who had been airlifted in, packaged Coons up for evacuation, and then they proceeded to escort the other hikers in the area out and back to the trailhead with their firearms. They then turned right back around to go search for the bear that had mauled Coons. It took them over a day. They had to camp up there, but eventually they located a bear, or rather, the bear located them. They awoke one morning to find themselves not 30 feet away from a grizzly bear. As they scrambled to grab their firearms, it zeroed in on them. Rather than run away as a bear typically would, it began to slowly approach. Landa and Gilder dispatched the bear with a rifle, but uncertainty remained. Was this the bear that had taken the life of Michelle Coons? And if so, why? Why now? Why this bear? The two biggest questions from that night hung in the air far longer than the smoke or the smell of the lightning ever could. How exactly had Glacier National Park, which had never previously recorded a single serious grizzly bear attack in its entire history, managed to suffer not one, but two fatal maulings just hours apart on opposite sides of the park? Was this just the beginning, or would there be more? To fully understand the interaction between humans and the environment in Glacier National Park, I think it's important to step back and think about the history of Glacier National Park and the humans living there. Glacier National Park, along with its Canadian counterpart, which is Waterton, together they make up the Glacier Waterton International Peace Park, encompasses over a million acres spanning two countries. Known as the crown of the continent, its hallmark feature are these jagged mountain peaks shaped by glaciers. It's also filled with verdant valleys, icy cirques, and ice-cold creeks. The Blackfeet and the Flathead people are native to this area. After years of pressure from European and American settlers and the U.S. Armed Forces, along with the depletion of their food supply, epidemic illness, they eventually gave up and kind of deeded the land to the U.S. government in 1895. In 1910, Glacier National Park was established at the behest of the Great Northern Railway and Lewis Hill because the Great Northern Railway crossed the Continental Divide at Marius Pass, which is just on the southern edge of the park. Great Northern Railway had an idea. In the ensuing decade, Great Northern Railway sought to market the park as an Alps-style vacation that could be taken right in America. They built chalets high in the mountains that could be reached only by horseback or on foot such as the Granite Park Chalet, Sperry Chalet, numerous other chalets. They also built numerous hotels in the style of the Swiss that remain classic lodges of the national park system. These include the Many Glacier Hotel on the shore of Swift Current Lake and the Glacier Park Hotel, where Helgeson worked. They also purchased the Lake McDonald Lodge, which sat on the shores of Lake McDonald and was originally accessed by boat across the shores of Lake McDonald. And this is on the west side of the park. Great Northern Railway sought to cash in on tourism by encouraging Americans to see America first, rather than endure a transatlantic ship voyage to go see the wonders of Europe. They tried to find areas along their railway that they could market as being just as good as Europe and similar to fulfill these different travel wants and requirements that people had. The initial experience of visiting the park mostly consisted of hiking or riding horses through the backcountry, and the people would have these long itineraries traversing the park from chalet to chalet and lodge to lodge. They would come and go along the Great Northern Railway, and that 
Glacier Park Lodge in East Glacier was right by the railway terminus, and that was oftentimes like a first introduction to the park. As you can imagine, they did not get a ton of visitation pressure because it was still quite remote, still a long rail journey out there. So it was very typical in those early years to have visitation of around 20 to 30,000 people per year. Through Glacier Park is a 1916 memoir by Mary Roberts Reinhardt, and it chronicles her travels in the park around the time that the chalet system was just being put into place. So I'm going to read just an excerpt of this because I think that it gives you a good overview of what the experience of visiting the park was like when it was first created. Ms. Reinhardt. The Great Northern has built huge hotels in three places and at a dozen other locations has built groups of log houses in a Swiss fashion so that it's possible to follow the trails by day and to be comfortably housed and fed each night. These hotels built by the Great Northern are now owned and controlled by the Glacier Park Hotel Company. At the entrance to the park is Glacier Park Hotel that cost half a million dollars and is almost as large as the national capital at Washington. Like all the hotels and chalets in the park, it's constructed largely of the huge trunks of the trees of the Northwest. The Indians called the Glacier Park Hotel the Great Log Lodge. There's everything you could want there, from a store to a swimming pool. Fifty miles away in the very heart of the park, there's the new Many Glaciers Hotel. It also cost half a million dollars. There's an automobile road that one can take to Many Glaciers. The chalet system, also built by Great Northern, has done more than anything else to make the park possible for tourists. Automobile roads and trails alike touch some of the chalets, and though I am firm in my conviction that it's impossible to see the park properly from an automobile, I realize that there are many who will not take the more arduous and sportsmanly method. For them, a short trip of 12 or 15 miles each day takes them from chalet to chalet. There are chalets at Two Medicine Lake, Cutback Canyon, Going to the Sun, St. Mary's Lake, Gunsight Pass, Sperry Glacier, Granite Park, and Belton. There are inclusive and very moderate rates for various tours to take up a certain number of days. A saddle horse costs $2 a day a pack horse $2 a day, a guide who will furnish his own horse and board himself $5 a day. There are rates from chalet to chalet including a night's lodging in comfortable beds, morning breakfast, evening dinner, and a carefully packed luncheon that are astonishingly cheap. For those who wish to go even more simply, there are teepee camps. There are three of these at St. Mary's, Going to the Sun, and Many Glaciers. They comprise a number of Indian teepees grouped about a central cabin, which includes a kitchen provided with a range and cooking utensils. The teepees themselves are wooden floored, and each is equipped with two single cot beds and bedding. At all of the teepee camps, the charge for lodging is 50 cents per bed per night. The use of the range and the cooking utensils is free. At the chalets nearby, hikers can purchase food at very, very reasonable prices. So you can see Mary Reinert there describing perhaps some of the first glamping outfits in the national park system. Eventually, much to the chagrin of people like Reinhardt, the automobile came to dominate the American tourism industry, and in 1932, construction of Going to the Sun Road began. The road bisects the park from St. Mary Lake to Lake McDonald, crossing the spine of the continent right at Logan Pass. After Going to the Sun Road was completed, Visitation to the park steadily increased until spiking after World War II. By the mid-1960s, when our story occurs, the park was seeing around a million visitors a year, compared to the two or three million visitors a year it sees in the late 2010s and around 2020 when this is being recorded. As visitation to the park grew, 
facilities were not always able to keep pace. And that's true today. If you're ever going to visit there, there's just not necessarily always enough facilities for the volume of visitation that they're getting. Wilderness chalets that had seen only a handful of people a year when they were first constructed in the 1960s were starting to run at capacity with people also camping nearby. In the 1950s and 60s, attitudes towards littering were really different than they are today. Littering was very commonplace, and it was a typical practice of most Americans. It was not uncommon for garbage to be present near campsites both in the front country and in the back country. In the 1960s and 70s, America had a lot of campaigns against litter that gained popularity, with slogans like, Keep America Beautiful and Don't Be a Litter Bug, but it would take years before public sentiment would completely turn against the haphazard disposal of waste. In the end, the anti-littering campaign would be one of the most successful environmental campaigns in all of history because now people are universally opposed to littering. People are just very, very against littering, and much more so than they were in the 1950s and 60s. The early advertisements for America's national parks really emphasized natural beauty above all else. The railways and hotels and other companies, as you remember, really wanted Americans to visit the national parks and spend their tourism dollars in America rather than Europe, so they played up the natural wonders of America that were somewhat similar to those of Europe, especially like drawing comparisons to the Alps and some of these other beautiful kind of transatlantic locations. Eventually, though, it became apparent that for many city-dwelling Americans in search of the exotic, the wildlife of the national parks was extremely unique and a huge draw. Bears became a huge attraction for tourism in Glacier and Yellowstone, especially in Yellowstone. So in Yellowstone, they even went to the extent of they would arrange bleachers around the dumps in Yellowstone so that people could come and watch the bears come and feed on garbage. For a while, bears actually became like the main mascot for the park that would draw people in, even over the thermal features, Old Faithful, that kind of thing. By the late 1960s, the National Park Service had noted an increase in bear maulings in Yellowstone, and they had started to change their tactics in relation to bears. For example, they discontinued the bleachers for the organized bear feedings, began tracking bears that displayed aggression towards humans, and they would sometimes have to eliminate or relocate those bears. However, up in Glacier National Park, those running the chalets and campgrounds at that time still would promote the likelihood of seeing a bear coming to feed on garbage as an attraction to come to their particular chalet. And they wouldn't necessarily organize feedings, but it was still known that one of the things that you could do at the chalets was sit out on the deck that was maybe overlooking the dump to watch bears as they came to feed on garbage in the evening. All of this is to say that in 1967, when the Night of the Grizzlies occurred, bears near national park campgrounds and lodging facilities would be very well acquainted with human food and would associate the smell of humans with food more than would be natural. <laughs> Let's think about bears for a minute. Ursus arctos horribilis. The grizzly bear is a subspecies of the brown bear that is unique to North America. Historically, these huge, huge animals ranged as far south as central Mexico, so much farther south than you would imagine. And the Mexican subspecies of the grizzly bear is actually extinct now, but they did range down to central Mexico and ranged as far east as Missouri and Iowa, which is crazy to think about. They were frequently encountered by Lewis and Clark on their expedition for much of their journey through Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Idaho, Pacific Northwest, 
Currently, their range has shrunk pretty dramatically, and they're most widespread in western Canada and Alaska, as well as the Rocky Mountains of Montana and kind of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem down into the Tetons and Wind Rivers in Wyoming. There are probably between 50 and 60,000 grizzly bears left in the wild, and over half of those are located in Alaska. The highest concentration of grizzly bears on one particular landmass that is like a permanent population can be found on Admiralty Island, which is in southeastern Alaska, and it's actually a national monument. The 1,600-square-mile island that's also a national monument contains more grizzly bears than the entire lower 48 states of the United States. So, very high concentration of bears. There have been bear attacks there. You can visit there, even though visitation is limited. So, if you just really want to see a bear and you have not had any luck, maybe arranging some sort of guide there would be a good way to see a grizzly bear. But be very careful if you go, because it sounds like there's a ton of them. The term, or the name grizzly bear actually seems to date back to Lewis and Clark. The term encapsulates kind of both the animal's speckled, kind of grizzled, quote-unquote, appearance, as well as just their nature as the grizzly, G-R-I-S-L-Y, kind of grizzly, ferocious kind of beast that they are. So it's kind of maybe a little bit of a double entendre there. There's some sexual dimorphism with relation to the size of grizzly bears. Overall, males are heavier. They average around 600 pounds, and females are closer to around 350 pounds. Typically, they'll be six feet long and about three feet tall, kind of standing from foot to shoulder. And if they stand on their hind legs, sometimes they can be as tall as nine or ten feet. There's also differences in the sizes of grizzly bears, coast versus the interior. So coastal grizzly bears, such as those that live like on the Katmai Peninsula in Alaska that feed on a lot of fatty salmon, those bears will be much larger than inland grizzly bears that you'd find in Montana or Yellowstone. They often weigh like two or 300 pounds more and can weigh over a thousand pounds easily. In general, grizzly bears are brown, but different subpopulations can have darker or lighter coloration. And some can be really, really dark and can be a little bit hard to tell from black bears if it's, say, like a female grizzly that's from an inland population that's a little bit smaller. So the best way to tell them apart is that the grizzly bear has kind of a more dished, kind of scooped out, flattened face. And then they, they have this distinctive kind of shoulder hump, like they have a big hump on their shoulder. Whereas black bears have kind of a flat back profile and a more pointed kind of nose and face. While grizzlies seem really ferocious and they can be very dangerous, they're the quintessential omnivores. They're not out there all the time like running down moose and antelope and bison and just tearing everything up. They're really just kind of like animal garbage cans. Like they will eat all kinds of different things and it varies depending on their habitat. So on the coast, uh, a lot of the bear's calories will come from fatty salmon, digging up clams, that sort of thing, a lot of seafood. And that's why coastal bears grow to such large sizes, because they have all of this access to this really, like, rich, fatty protein. Inland bears um, primarily feed, as far as meat is concerned, on carcasses and um, sometimes on, like, calves or sickened animals. So they will hunt, but generally they're kind of singling out the most vulnerable members of any given herd of prey animal. It's most common for them to feed on calves, in the areas where grizzlies and elk and moose overlap, grizzlies are one of the greatest causes of elk and moose calf mortality. Nevertheless, for both coastal and inland grizzly bears, plants make up a majority of most bears' diets. So more than 50%, probably up to like 80% for a lot of bears. 
Uh, there's relatively little competition with black bears because the grizzly bears tend to favor kind of more open habitats with old growth forest. And usually if they are in an area where they're overlapping, the black bears will kind of give them a wide berth. Grizzlies in particular will be known to eat a lot of like nuts and like roots and tubers and berries and that kind of thing. So that's actually probably bigger part of their diet than any sort of meat or hunting or anything like that. In general, just like black bears and most wild animals, grizzlies want nothing to do with humans. We are not a natural part of their ecosystem that they really want to deal with at all. So a wild grizzly bear really is not going to generally be that interested in human beings, either as a food source or just out of curiosity. You know, it's not really going to perceive you as a threat or a food source unless you kind of surprise it. Grizzlies are more likely to defend themselves against a human if it represents an unexpected threat. And they're more likely to be defensive than a black bear, which is more likely to run away in general. This is especially true if a mother grizzly is encountered and she's with her cubs. That's the situation that's actually responsible for the majority of attacks on humans. Kind of a typical scenario for a negative human-bear interaction would be somebody startling a mother bear with her cubs, catching them off guard, especially if it's like near a food source. That's kind of like the typical scenario. Since bears generally try to avoid humans, any attraction to humans or association of humans with food is generally due to some sort of conditioning on the part of the humans. Bears that become accustomed to obtaining food from humans, such as from unsecured garbage, livestock, untended fruit orchards, unsecured food of different campers, um, they lose some of their fear of humans and begin to associate human presence and scent with a food supply. And this is often what will lead to an increase in bear-human interactions and attacks. As we've already seen, Glacier National Park in the 1960s had a frighteningly high level of garbage in and around their campsites and lodging facilities that was leading to increasing habituation of grizzly bears to human food. This kind of complicit conditioning of the bears to come feed on human food waste was probably a factor in this increase in grizzly bear attacks. One has to wonder, though, the two young women who were fatally attacked on the night of the grizzlies, August 12th to August 13th, were sleeping peacefully, they posed no threat to the bears that attacked them, and by all accounts, weren't sleeping with, like, food in their sleeping bag. So how was it that the bears were drawn to them in particular? Only tracking down the bears responsible would answer this question. For answers to this, and to hear more about the park's response to these two killings, you'll need to tune in to part two of our series, On the Night of the Grizzlies. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to encourage anyone out there who liked what they heard, who wants to hear more from us, to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. You can also visit our website at nerdroamer.com to check out bonus content for a lot of the episodes if you check the blog posts. Be sure to like and subscribe to us on Twitter and Instagram to get extra photos pertinent to episodes, news about Nerd Roamer, alerts on new episodes, and that kind of thing. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep roaming, nerds.